Hello, my name is Jason Reichel, and you're listening to Risk Management Brick by Brick. I'm fascinated with people who are helping build and maintain the physical world around us. On each episode of this podcast, we'll dive in with a risk manager, speak to them about how technology plays a role in this process. It's my pleasure to introduce Zach Wright as our guest for today's episode. Zach is an experienced risk manager at the Haskell Company. The Haskell Company is a large construction organization with over 2,000 professionals. Zach is a certified construction risk and insurance specialist who knows his stuff. This was a really great conversation. It's a follow-up from the RIMS conference. Let's get to it. Hello, Zach. How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Thank you for joining me on Brick by Brick. I'm excited to catch up with you. We were at... What conference were we at? We were at... Global RIMS in Atlanta. Global RIMS. RIMS. RIMS 2023. I did a lot of interviews and then we missed our chance to talk. So I guess the first question I have for you before we get started is, what did you learn at RIMS? What was the mood? What was the vibe about? Insurance is volatile right now, especially... Being in construction, we do a lot of property style policies and boy, there, there's something else right now, especially we're based out of Florida. We do probably 50% of our work in Florida. So we are definitely challenged by the state of the property market. So insurance is volatile. It's on all the minds of risk managers. We'll jump into all of that. But to get everyone started, why don't you give a 40,000 foot view of your career and how you ended up in that chair with all those Star Wars figures behind you? Sure. So I joined the Haskell team here a little bit over seven years ago. Prior to risk management, I was a techie. I did audio and visual aids for my church here in in Jacksonville. So I have a little bit of a background in underwriting from many moons ago. I did some freelance underwriting for a friend of the family. So I kind of had a baseline risk management view, but uh, I've learned quite a bit here in the seven plus years here at Haskell. What's you had to talk about where your risk management views are now and what you view are the major components of the job. How would you break that down? Sure. So my biggest job function here is I control our builder's risk program, which is our property for all of our projects. I handle our bonding needs for surety bonds and as well as our work comp. So I'm pretty much from the operations side, right? I, I like to handle the day-to-day. I'm the one that gets dirty with the project teams to make sure all the insurance is in place and to make sure that our guys are covered when they go to the site. Because at Haskell here, safety is is our, our big push just with any construction company. But we take it a step further with how we protect our not only our clients, but our team members here, our subcontractors, you know, anybody that sits foot on one of our sites, we want to make sure they have the best coverage and they're covered for anything that happens. And so that looks like working with your vendors, working with your subcontractors, to make sure that they also understand the insurance requirements and that they're getting the support they need? Does it look like obviously developing procedures in order to accept the risk that you are taking on those jobs? Do you guys have a process? So one of my favorite frameworks is governance, which is the team commits to having the conversation about new incoming risks, and that could be made up of you and you know, maybe executives, however that works within your organization. Then that goes down to evaluation of your risk appetite. Are we going to take on this risk? Are we going to mitigate this risk? Are we going to pass this risk off? And then it flows into policies, procedures, or contractual risk transfer if you're going to pass it down to your subcontractors. That's a very sophisticated way of looking at it. 
How do you then go and educate this, the vendors or even your own teammates about these processes? What sort of field processes do you have? Yeah, so I think the big thing that we do here is we do training, right? Every six months, I'm meeting with project teams, going over emerging risk. Like, so two of the big ones that we've seen in the last five years are cyber and drug. So we educate them on the risks associated with, say, John Smith has his drone. He wants to bring it and takes a picture of the job site. Well, here's a risk if you have somebody that brings a personal drug to the site, right? Like you're at risk of putting yourself in danger as well as putting the company, some contractors, anybody on the site. So our biggest thing is training, right? And we harp on it. With COVID, you know, we've kind of switched to the team Zoom style meetings for training. I think it's easier for us to get everybody together that way. But we're always educating them on emerging risk. If things change within our own insurance portfolio, as soon as they change, we let them know. We like, look, here's how this is going to affect you. This is how it can affect your contractors. The other thing we do is we're a relatively small risk management team here. There's there's only three of us. So we all know everything that happens within our risk management team. So any team member can come to any one of us. And say, hey, I got a question about this, and they'll be able to help them, or we can get together as a team and help. We're really customer focused, right? And our customer in risk management is not necessarily just vendors, it's our teammates. You know, it's the ones who are, who are putting everything together. How do you give that initial? So, do you guys have a standard contract or by vendor or whatever is necessary for that particular job? Do you grade and then give a risk assessment of what needs to be mitigated? So what I guess what I'm getting at is, do you fall into the camp where you have low, mid, high risk, and then you have different requirements for those? Or is everything bespoke in the way that you guys operate? So the way that we run is we have a separate pre-qual team that does all of the pre-qualification, which assesses the initial risk, right? Before we even touch it. Now, we trained our pre-qualification team members, right, to, if they see something out of the ordinary, on the risk profile, on the insurance side, on the bonding side, anything like that, come to us because we're the one-stop shop for it, right? So if there's an issue with somebody who maybe doesn't have an insurance coverage or their ratings for their recordable injury rate is not as good, then we work through it with them. And that's really how we protect ourselves in the beginning, right? We also have five or six different styles of contracts, depending on the work being done, right? So we don't just have a one-size-fits-all contract because not every contractor is one-size-fits-all. Yeah, and that, I mean, obviously reduces the contractors you can use and everything else. Which Absolutely. Is not, that's part of that risk profile is, is actually looking at the job and putting it into a category then you can actually facilitate and be successful at. Yeah, and Haskell is a little bit unique. We are a full-service design build firm. So we can take a project from start to finish, from design, we have agreements for professional services all the way through our construction. So we're kind of unique. So we kind of have to have that model of, you have to have a contract that fits the scope of work that's going on, correct? So that's our second kind of form of risk transfer. We also have an in-house legal team who reviews prime contracts with owners and reviews some contracts with our vendors to make sure that any contractual risk transfer is being properly identified and passed through if need be. So, I mean, we have very many layers of how we protect not only our owners, but Haskell as a whole and our subcontractors to make sure subcontractors are able to, number one, perform the work and number two, do it safely. Because it's all about safety. It's all about saving that person's life on the job site, you know, just because you had the right procedures in place. Absolutely. And also, you know, like 
I always talk about the built world and how the job is to add to the world and get that work done. Obviously, businesses are designed to make profits. But in reality, everybody wants a positive outcome across the board. And I think that's the biggest thing that I found with risk managers and their philosophies of how do I become proactive where my team will share information with me versus looking at me as a human stop sign within the organization? How do I get my project managers or even my vendors to share risk? And how do I change the perception of what risk management used to be, which is we're going to reduce cost to, no, we actually want to know this stuff because if we can handle X successfully, then that opens doors for us versus just saying no to everything. So talk about that journey since you've been around in the field for a while now and where you guys are at with that today. So it's funny you mentioned that. So when I joined back in 2016, risk management, we were the no people, right? We were the ones that nobody wanted to talk to us because if they talked to us, they felt like they had done something wrong and we were there to slap their wrist or tell them, you know, they're not doing it right. Over the years, the philosophy's changed, right? We've grown just like a lot of construction companies and we've really shifted the focus from us being the no people to us being your first line of defense. So if something goes wrong, we're not here to tell you what you did wrong. We're here to make sure that you get through that in the best outcome possible. Right, mitigate from this point forward, basically. Correct, correct. Everybody, we're human. We're gonna make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. It's gonna happen but it's how you can mitigate that loss, right? And the best mitigation is to be proactive, not to be reactive. And, and for a long time, risk management here was very reactive. So we've really encouraged our project teams to, if they see a problem on the horizon, reach out to us as early as you can. We're here to help. We're not here to be a deterrent. We're here to help. And that's where a lot of people don't understand where risk management it really is today, especially in the construction world not there to just stop the work, essentially. Correct. Correct. The work has to continue. We understand that. But we're here to make sure that the work is continuing safely. And if any issues arise, we'll help you through it. Because that's what we're here for. We're here to serve our customers, right? We're not here to be the big bad guy that tells you no. Controversial topic sometimes is in risk management, you have what I'll call a modern view of risk management, and people can correct me if I'm, they can throw tomatoes at me if they want, which is that COI tracking, actually validating the insurance information that is part of the contract is closing the loop on a process that starts in the prequal and selecting the vendor and the contract signing. And it's a pivotal part. And then there's some risk managers who go, well, it's in the contract. So if something happens, we can just litigate against the contract. We don't really care about the COI or knowing if they're compliant. What's your take on that? And how do you manage that within your own teams? All right. So yes, very controversial. When I started here, COIs were anything and everything for us, right? To get paid, you had to have COI. When the project closed, you had to have COI. Within their statute of limitations of complete operations, had to see the COI every year. What we've kind of adopted now is, yes, the COI is important. It's very important because like you said, from start to finish, pre-qualification, let me start over. Pre-qualification, we ask, can you meet our limits? Now, sometimes they don't even know what those limits are and they just click yes. And then we get to the contract and they're like, oh, well, we can't provide that. So what we tell our teams is, look, if you have issues with a subcontractor that they can't provide something, come to us. We have solutions to help not only mitigate any risk associated with not having a certain part of the coverage, but to get 
things flowing forward because the last thing we need, especially in this day and age, is to have a contract where you have a vendor that you have to have, number one. Uh, number two, maybe has long lead supply chain issues to get behind. So, and we all tie that back into the COI. So we don't normally require COIs during pre-qualification, but before contractor steps on site, we're asking for their COI. We have one of my team members on our team. That's her job function. One of them is that she reviews COIs. But that also goes back to training, right? We've trained our team members what to look for. We are not the ones that are just going to current launch look at a COI from top to bottom. We've created certain help documents that shows, hey, look, here's our contracts. Here's what's required. If something doesn't make sense to you, please reach out to us. We'll walk you through it. But we're giving them the tools to succeed ahead of time. Yeah, I think that's important. When I also think about taking that one step further and talking about different processes, as it's becoming an issue, and this was something that I heard at RIMS, where your contractor pool and maybe even your direct employee pool is shrinking because the industry across almost all are shrinking in tradecraft professions, that you must develop a stronger relationship with your contractors, with your employees as an organization. And thus it becomes like almost an extension of your team. And I, I know that every construction company will say that their contractors are an extension of their team. But like people are actually going out and now providing training or doing forced coverage for their providers or looking at how many endorsements did we waive? How much risk did we accept? So I guess the question I have one is, how do you keep track of all your risk appetite? How do you take and put in front of your executive team and go, these are the things we opened ourselves up to for risk. These are the things that we shut down. Like, Do you have a cadence like that? Is that part of your process? Is it part of the process that you're thinking about implementing in the future? Where would you like to see that process go? So here at Haskell, we, we're kind of unique. So we require waivers if somebody can't meet the limits. And those have to be signed by one of our directors of construction. So what we're doing is we're telling them, look, here's the risk. They'll come to us and say, hey, I have, an, I have a waiver that's been put on my desk. Can you tell me what the risk is? Sure. And we'll lay it out for them. I mean, it could be something simple as they're... Um, couple hundred thousand dollars short on the coverage. And I'm like, look, I mean, it's a $50,000 contract being a couple hundred thousand short of a $4 million limit or whatever it is, not a big deal. But then there's some who are like, well, we have this contractor who says they don't care professional, yet they're providing design services. That's a big deal. So, but the waiver is our way of making sure that they reach out to us and say, here's what we have. And here's what we're thinking of waiving. Can you give me your blessing on it, number one? Or can you tell me what risk we're taking if we if we do go through with it? So we try to make let our project teams make their own decisions. But like I said, we're here to to serve them as a customer. So we Well, that's really interesting because the way you guys do it is there's accountability, but also flexibility. Correct. Everyone is incentivized to expose the risk for a conversation to occur, an authoritative decision, are we approving this or not? And it's not just made within the risk department. So I think that's really smart order of procedure there. Yeah, and it's good too because, like you said, the, all the authority is not on one person. It's a team effort, right? So we can only advise on what the risk is. We can't go out there and stop the risk ourselves. So, but it's our job to make sure that they're knowledgeable about the risk that they're about to take if they approve it. So, and also, I mean, we don't want to be the ones that we waive something, then we have a claim. Well, risk management said it was fine. No, I told you, here's what would happen if you did it. And you went through with it. You could have denied it and made them get the coverage. So 
That also leads to another thing that's become popular in conversation, usually behind closed doors. I like to, on the podcast, try to have these conversations out in the open, which is the idea that as far as like organizations go, like a lot of organizations and risk management teams and their executives don't really have any visibility into what's being waived or what's being done. So it sounds like you've solved that problem. But then the secondary problem is they're doing all this work and it has very little impact on their premiums when they renew their insurance. Like you could have technology for tracking COIs. You could have all these different elements in your organization. And yet it's not reducing or or preventing your insurance premiums from raising every year. And there's now talk and thought that like, oh, organizations that do have their act together that are showing that they have clear processes and XYZ should be considered for at least a discount in their insurance premiums going up, or there has to be some outcome that's beneficial for organizations across the board. Do you agree? Are you able to influence your insurance renewals successfully with your processes and programs? So I agree. If you are number one, let's start from the broad picture, right? Construction technology helps mitigate so many risks nowadays compared to just five years ago in this industry, right? So for instance, we have telematics for our vehicles. We don't have a really big fleet, but we have it. And it's a good tool for us because if there's an accident, we have ways that we can mitigate risk. Well, we've approached our carrier about it and they're like, it's really, it's everybody's doing it. So there's no reason to give any discounts because everybody's doing it. They're more along the lines of thinking, well, this is mandatory at this point. If you don't have it, then I'm probably going to raise your rates, right? I'm not going to give you any kind of discount. So that's where I'm seeing it a lot. And I'm seeing that a lot in the cyber. But cyber, I am starting to see if you have certain things in place, you will get some reduction in premium. We've been fortunate enough to have that this year. We have some really knowledgeable, great IT team members here that have really put some good foundations in place. And our cyber carrier took notice of it. But I think you see it on both sides, right? You'll see the things that everybody's doing. And if everybody's doing it, then you're not going to see that that reduction. Well, is that because the cyber providers are typically because there's only, you know, a handful of really great ones out there, but they're more modern in their approach and what they're actually looking for. So they want those data points in order to give the best premiums and be competitive, where maybe our traditional insurance companies don't really have the incentive to be competitive because they know that you're in this region and you use them or this guy and it's going to be the same pricing kind of no matter what. I often wonder if this whole thing in the certain industries get this bad rap for not adapting technology. Your background's in a technologist, so this is why I feel compelled to ask this question to you. And where it's like, well, no, technology only thrives in organizations where the output of the technology is understood and, and utilized. And if the insurance companies are not really going to be looking at this in their underwriting process, then you can put all the technology in the world in place, but it's not going to have the outcome that you need in order to really invest the processes and procedures in that technology. And I think that the industry is changing. I do think that there is positive signs that the industry, both on the insurance side and within construction and property management, other more slow to adopt industries, so to speak, of technology are now seeing that those technologies are being considered. Now, the question is, you have so much data what can we do with that data in order to benefit the entire ecosystem, which might be reducing premiums, might be introducing new products, might be whatever it might be. But ultimately, I see that it has to be full cycle. And I'm seeing the construction industry adopt technologies at a rapid rate right now because this conversation is at least occurring. Correct. And Haskell has an R&D wing, uh, Disrupt Tech, right? And I mean, 
the way I see it is we may not get premium reduction, but with the technology that we're implementing and how modern and state-of-the-art it is, our savings are coming on the other end, right? We're reducing the, the volume of claims, number one. We're reducing the severity of claims, number two. So I look at it as a kind of a checks and balances, right? Well, we may not get that premium reduction up front that we want to see, but if we can save one or two claims a year... On cl- actual claims that are going to go yeah, out. Yeah, right. You're going to see both sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to see something that is positive. So, and like I said, we're very, and I mean, we really strive in R&D. Our team's fantastic and we're constantly rolling things out to project teams, we're piling things on job sites, anything from hard hacks to robotics. So it's good for us because it keeps us safe, but it's also good for the industry because I think the industry needs to be that technology is the way of the future to help build because you still have a lot who are the this old school just technology is not going to help you where it's very much a very good number one deterrent for possible injuries and claims but number two it's also efficient right absolutely it's been really good talking to you i I like that we've been able to cover so much one last question i have for you is around advice for people in the, entering the industry because another big thing at RIMS was all around how there's an aging risk management population and we need to get modern risk managers into the field, entice them in. And then there was a good number of youngish, you know, in their mid-20s, risk managers or risk analysts. What piece of advice would you have in order to have a long, fruitful career, both in this and maybe in general? What I like to tell younger risk managers is this. Risk management is a very broad field. I would say knowledge is power in this case. Don't pigeonhole yourself into one area if you can, number one. Number two, network. Network, uh, that's the biggest thing I've learned in seven years in risk management. The risk management field is not a big field. So it's good to have those relationships to help you grow. And then number three is just really just dive into what you're doing. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Learn from your mentors as much as you can. Soak all the knowledge you can when you're young, because I promise you, it's beneficial. Yeah, I think your point two and point three go. So the biggest thing I've noticed is everyone says network's important in all industries. And technology, where I come from, of course, you're networking. Oftentimes, you're trying to sell someone when when you're also networking. What I find that's interesting about risk management is it's a body like sort of professors where if we share knowledge in risk management, everybody gets better. And that's better for everyone in the industry. And so it really is networking leads to mentorship, right? I found that so many people have been willing to step up and fill in the gaps and share information with me that is really unique that you don't get in every single profession, right? And that way I find it to be a very, all you have to do is be curious and lean in and there'll be people there that want to support you through that process and make you the best that they can possibly be because they have a passion for it. Yeah, and I mean, I had our previous director of management here was a great mentor to me. She taught me how to do things. And then our current director, he's been here almost three years. And I mean, uh, leaps and bounds of just the things I've learned, just soaking it up, right? I mean, I'm not old by any stretch of imagination, but I mean, I've learned so much in the last two and a half years under his guide and mentorship. It's fascinating. Risk management is a fascinating world. You're never going to see the same thing twice. That's correct. Every challenge is going to be different. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for joining me on Brick by Brick. It was a fascinating and awesome conversation. And I look forward to catching up at another conference. Awesome. Thanks, Jason, for having me. Thank you. Peace, man. 
Yeah. Risk Management Brick by Brick is brought to you by TrustLayer. Find out how TrustLayer manages risk so that the people can build the physical world around us. Head over to TrustLayer.io. And then make sure to subscribe to Risk Management Brick by Brick on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the TrustLayer team, thank you for listening. <laughs>